Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Hi, welcome to our Wednesday message. I'm Pastor Ken with Faith Dialogue. Our Wednesday messages are part of a series that we call Pondering Prophecy. And we've been going through the scriptures that are related to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised he would return at his second coming, and it's the most anticipated event in all of Christianity all through the ages. You know, prophecy is what we're talking about, and prophecy is actually uh, more than 25% of the Bible. Do you realize that? 25% of the Bible is actually about prophecy, and much of the prophecy is still unfulfilled. Uh, there are hundreds of scriptures that refer to the end of days, uh, to that period uh, we refer to just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, through the ages, uh, believers, uh, believers in Jesus Christ, uh, your fellow Christian brothers and sisters would, would read these passages, would read these scriptures, and they would get hope. Uh, they would be restored. They would be able to feel peace because they knew that Jesus was soon returning. You know, uh, God is the only one that can truly be involved in prophecy because God transcends time. He knows the beginning from the end. Only God can call things that are not, those things in the future, as though they were, as, they, as if they had already happened in the past. God doesn't look into the future to predict events. God is, God is the future. Uh, you know, recently we assembled uh, 12 questions. We asked a number of people that are associated with our ministry, people in church, asked them about the questions that they would have about the second coming, and we assembled 12 of the best questions. You know, a few weeks ago we started going through these questions, but really all we had time to do was to rephrase the question and give a, a short answer. So now we actually have what we call a series within a series within this pondering prophecy. And we're going to examine, re-examine each of these 12 questions in a little bit longer format. Anything we can get in within the next 30 to 35 minutes. So we've already looked at the first three of these questions. Uh, that was, um, is American Bible prophecy? The second one was modern day prophets, do they speak for God? And the third uh, was last week, will the church go through the tribulation period? If you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can go and take a look at any of these at any time. Our YouTube channel is at www.faithdialogue.org. Um, today we're going to tackle another one of the 12 questions that we were asked, and that is, what is the greatest sign that Jesus is returning soon? Or what is the greatest sign of the soon returning king? Uh, the signs of Jesus returning was actually the very question that the disciples asked Jesus on the very day of his arrest. Just prior to Jesus going to the cross to die for the sin of mankind, the apostles asked him this question. They said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. That's in Matthew 24, verse 3. You know, many are familiar with Jesus' response. Jesus responded, See to it that no one deceives you, 
For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Then he goes on. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of birth pains. You know, so Jesus says that prior to his return, there'll be a time of, of deception, both general deception as well as a religious deception. And then Jesus goes on to say that there'll be wars, earthquakes, famines, and lawlessness. And these things will happen at the time... Um, they will not necessarily, however, indicate that the end is coming. Because Jesus says something very interesting. He says, see to it that you are not alarmed. And then I believe he explains, he says, these things are the beginning of, of birth pains. You know, so, so there's something about these troubles, what Jesus calls birth pains, and in other English translations are called sorrows. We see that the wars, the earthquakes, the famines, the lawlessness, in themselves don't necessarily speak to the end times. They don't tell us that the end is near, that Jesus is coming. However, when they start coming together, like the beginning of birth pains, we can start paying attention. And that's what we should be doing now. We should be paying attention. You know, most of us are familiar with the concept of birth pains. I say concept because as a guy, I only have a, a rough idea. However, uh, you women out there, the mothers, my wife for sure, uh, know ex exactly what birth pains are all about. And this is how you would describe them. They start off almost undetectable, undetectable. The expectant mother says, I felt something. What do you think that is? I felt something. Um, uh, um, then what, what happens? Well, over time, it's very sure that these are exactly birth pains because they start coming more rapidly and they become more intense. They don't go away. They come again and again and again. And then what happens? Well, they start coming so close together that there's just this, this pain, this, this problem that's happening. And of course, it culminates with the birth of a child. The baby is coming. So these signs, Jesus says, in themselves don't mean much. Jesus says that we are not to be alarmed when we see any one of these things individually. And over the ages, there have been times what, when we would have been alarmed just because of the severity of what was happening, the incident. The world has experienced many sorrows, many wars, earthquakes, famines, lawlessness. Here's just a few. For example, the Black Death in the 14th century, also called the bubonic plague, was horrible. It killed somewhere between 70 to 100 million people in Europe, but it wasn't a sign of the Lord's return. World War I, another 40 million, but it wasn't a sign. World War II, 75 to 80 million people perished. A, a horror to many people that felt it, all of the horror that was associated with World War II. Many people felt it was the wrath of God, an obvious sign, but it wasn't. 
And then all the famines. There's so many famines, we can't even begin to describe them all. I'll just pick a couple. In China, from 1958 to 1961, one of the greatest man-made disasters of all time. The Chinese communists had this great leap forward, these forward thinkers, these amazing, brilliant people in China, uh, created a pandemic that caused one of the greatest famines of all time. In all, 50 million Chinese. But it wasn't a sign. The Irish potato famine was one of the worst famines in recent time, in the 19th century. It caused a crop disease that killed literally all of the potatoes in Ireland, which was the main diet of, of most people, including all of the poor people. More than 2 million died of starvation, another 2 million migrated to the United States. But it wasn't a sign. And then there's earthquakes. Anyone that's ever lived through an earthquake uh, feels that it's got to be a sign of some kind. If anything, the, it feels like the world is coming to an end. You know, my wife and I, along with her children, lived in Mexico for a period of time. And we experienced a number of earthquakes while we were there. And while they were all minor, all of our friends, all of our Mexican friends and neighbors, nearly all of them could recall the 1985 Mexico City earthquake uh, that killed 5,000 people. And actually, there are hundreds of earthquakes every year. But no, the earthquake in themselves are not a sign. Yet Jesus said there would be a time when they were be like birth pains. There will be a time when these events these sorrows begin, but they don't end. They just keep happening with more and more frequency and more and more intensity. Uh, however, in this chapter that I quoted, Jesus continued. He said, after describing these signs and actually speaking about the coming of him, his, his second coming, when the sun and the moon were dark and the Son of Man was coming in the clouds, Jesus tells a, a mysterious parable. He actually calls it a lesson. He says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. Uh, it's obviously associated with the second coming and actually directed to his disciples who had asked him this question, what, are the, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And this is what Jesus says at the end of all of this discussion about birth pains and the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Jesus says this, he says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, there are specific keys to this parable, this lesson that Jesus teaches. First of all, Israel is seen as the fig tree. We see this as well in another parable that Jesus told, as well as the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, who was shown two baskets of figs, good figs and bad figs. And the Lord said it represented both uh, the exiles of Babylon, the Jews in Babylon during the exile, and then also King Zedekiah, and his minions, those were the bad figs that were, and Zedekiah was the last king of Israel. He was actually appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're told that the fig tree is one of the last trees to bud, and our attention is focused on Israel. As when it begins to bud, Jesus signifies the end of the age is approaching. He says, truly I tell you, these, this generation will not pass away 
until all these things have taken place. That's Matthew 24, 34. And this statement, by the way, that all things will, all these things will, uh, uh, the, this generation that says, sees this will not pass away is also repeated in the Gospels of Mark and of Luke. Now, the generation does not mean the generation that he was speaking to, obviously, because he was speaking to a generation that passed away a long time ago. It's been 2,000 years almost since Jesus has, um, has uh, ascended into heaven and he has not yet returned. Most associate this budding fig tree as one of the key signs that Jesus will soon return. And this is the answer to the question for today. What is the greatest sign of Jesus' soon return? And that answer is unmistakably Israel. Now, we're not done because the key to understanding all end time prophecy, all biblical prophecy in the second coming of Jesus is Israel. If we understand Israel's role in end time prophecy, we will understand biblical prophecy. If we fail, if we fail to understand Israel, we will fail to fully understand end time prophecy. You know, in understanding Israel's role in end time prophecy is not just simply knowing that Israel, after 2,000 years, became a nation again in May of 1948. As spectacular as that is, um, Israel's becoming a nation, and that was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, but that's not the entire story. You see, there's actually three keys to understanding Israel's role in Bible prophecy. The first one is that the church, the church is not Israel. Number two, Israel will be fully restored in the land. And number three, Israel has a destiny, a separate destiny that is yet to be fulfilled. So let's take each one of these three keys one at a time. We need to spend most of our time on the very first point. The church is not Israel. Many theologians have debated this subject, Israel versus the church, actually since medieval times and even before. Believing that God has rejected the Jews since they rejected Jesus as the Messiah has not only led to bad theology, but it also led to discrimination and actual persecution. And, you know, the reverse is also true, in that discrimination and the persecution of the Jews required the belief, the theological belief that God had abandoned the Jews as the promised people, that he was done with them, and that they had killed the Messiah and they were forever lost. Theologians reasoned that God poured out his wrath, scattered the, uh, the Jews, and transferred the promises that had been assigned to Israel to spiritual Israel, better known as the church. However, the Bible speaks directly to this subject, this issue of the church as well as Israel. You know, God had promised Abraham, and going all the way back to Genesis 12, that through Abraham, that Abraham would be a, a great nation. And it says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The apostle Paul speaks to this blessing through Abraham, saying in Galatians, if you're in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The Bible tells us that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, Gentile Christians, people like you and me, have been adopted into Abraham's family. 
And I think that's pretty well understood. However, and here's the point, when adoption welcomes new children into a family, the biological children, the sons and daughters, don't cease to be part of the family. They're not abandoned. They're not thrown out with the trash. Paul addresses this directly in Romans 11. And he states, has God rejected his people, the Jews? By no means, Paul says. Then he goes on, he says, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gift and calling of God are irrevocable. Now that word irrevocable means exactly what it means. It means that it's irrevocable, it cannot be changed. And today as Christians, uh, we now share in the spiritual blessing of being God's children. It does not mean that we have replaced our Jewish brothers and sisters, or the Jewish people, or that any of God's many promises in the covenant he made to Abraham are no longer valid. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks specifically to the end times and the future of Israel. In Romans 11, he speaks, as the gent he speaks uh, that the Gentiles are grafted in as a wild olive shoot. Uh, but in reference to the Jews, Paul says that even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, Paul continues, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those, these natural branches, which are the Jews, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You know, so Paul makes it very clear that God is not done with the Jews. You know, this passage suggests that God's plan is to bring the Jewish people back to the olive tree as a fully restored branch. Romans 11, chapter 11 says this, it says, For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, which is the Jews' disobedience, so they too have been now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. You know, the prophecies uh, left for Israel are numerous and they're unfulfilled and they will be fulfilled literally at some point in the future because of God's character, not because of the Jewish people, but because of God's character. God's character and nature is true and it's unchanging. He will always, always fulfill his promises and we should, we should rejoice in that. And this brings us to our second key point in understanding Israel as the key to understanding Bible prophecy. And the second key point is that Israel will be fully restored, fully restored in the land. You know, there are many scriptures that speak to the regathering of the people of Israel in the promised land. The Lord said it was their inheritance. The prophet Jeremiah said, for example, for behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. Now Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, prophesied of the day that Israel would return. He likened them to a wandering flock of sheep that had strayed away from their shepherd. And, and this is what Ezekiel says. He says, For thus says the Lord God, I myself, will, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd searches out a flock. And I will seek out my sheep and deliver them. I will bring them out 
from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. Does that sound like the church? Does that sound like the spiritual church? Are we supposed to interpret that as meaning somehow the church is going to be fed on the mountains of Israel? I don't think so. Now, while we see the people of Israel physically in the promised land, from a spiritual point of view, very few are actually restored. Very few people in Israel, very few Jews in Israel actually believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Very, even, very few even believe in God. Now there's a, there's a growing minority, there's a growing messianic um, a branch within Israel. I've talked to a number of people where they said, you know, back 30, 40 years ago, there was just a few messianic uh, congregations and now there's a number of them, but still very few believe in Jesus. They aren't fully restored. However, the Apostle Paul speaks that ultimately all of Israel would be saved but we're nowhere near that yet. Ezekiel gives a chronological order of events that will happen in the end times, from the rebirth of Israel to the construction of the third temple. Israel, uh, Israel's restoration prophesied by Ezekiel was to be physical, followed by the spiritual. Physical first, followed by the spiritual. Israel was to be regathered and given her land before being reborn spiritually. In Ezekiel 36, 24, for example, Ezekiel says, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of the countries and will bring you into your own land. That's the physical restoration. But then a few verses later, he says, And then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Ezekiel continues, he says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will be put in you. I will take away the stony heart um, out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statues, and you will keep my judgments, and you will do them. You know, Israel's physical restoration has happened. We see Israel in the land today, but the spiritual re restoration only takes place later. The prophet Zechariah speaks of the restoration of Israel and the prophecies are unique because he is speaking post-captivity, meaning that he's prophesying in the 6th century after the Jews are allowed to return from Babylon. He begins in his prophecy in the 10th chapter of Zechariah with these words. He says, in the time of the latter rain. And you got to circle that in your Bible. A likely reference to the last days, just as the prophet Joel had, talk, had spoken about the latter rain. And it says this, it says, Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. And then verse 6, uh, the prophet goes on, he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. For I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Now, this is the physical return. But then Zechariah, like Ezekiel, makes a distinction of the latter spiritual return. He, when, when ears and hearts are softened, this happens during the seven years of tribulation, specifically in the second half, the last 
42 months or 1260 days spoken of in the book of Revelation. Zechariah chapter 14 says this, he says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The cities shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half towards the south. Now again, this happens during the end of the tribulation, the last half of the tribulation. This is when spiritual Israel, this is when, the, when Israel is fully restored. This is the timing of the fulfillment of what Zechariah said in chapter 12. It is at the coming of the Lord when Jesus returns to the earth to the Mount of Olives with his saints and all of those that had died earlier and were alive when Jesus came for his bride. We all come back with Jesus and Israel is fully restored. And this is when all of Israel will be saved, as Paul said. Um, in Zechariah 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. There's that grace. We know we're saved by grace. And supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And you see, this is the part of the, of the restoration. This is the spiritual restoration of Israel. And this brings us to our third point and our conclusion for today's lesson. Number three, Israel has a destiny yet to be fulfilled. You know, Israel has this destiny, and the destiny will be, um, we will be unfolded during the tribulation period. But first, the Lord will come back for his bride, the body of Christ. This is the rapture of the church. It's detailed specifically in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The church is not destined to, be, to wrath, and we will be caught up into the heavens to be with the Lord forever. Uh, and that's when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. At that time, Israel's final destiny is unfolded. If we go back to the prophecy of the fig tree, we see both good figs and bad figs. The bad figs were those that have had hard hearts and they refused to believe all through the ages. We also see good figs. And the good figs would include the 144,000 Messianic Jews, the 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel that are spoken of in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, God is protecting them. God seals them. And these 144,000 Messianic Jews go and evangelize both the Jews as well as the Gentile nations at the very end of the age. This is part of Israel's destiny. The prophet Daniel speaks of a ruler that will come in the end times. In Daniel chapter 9, 27, the prophecy says, and he, that's this, this, this ruler, we know him as the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. 
Now that one week is seven years, but in the middle of the week, meaning after three and a half years, he'll put a stop to sacrifice in the grain offering and the wing of abominations will come, one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. You know, Jesus spoke of that. He said, pay attention. When you see this, this Antichrist, this one spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the, in the temple, so this is the fulfillment. This is the destiny of Israel. This is part of their destiny. The destiny includes a peace treaty, seven years of a peace treaty and sacrifices in the temple of God in Jerusalem. In the book of Revelation, there are two witnesses that are spoken of. They prophesy in the streets of Jerusalem. The Bible says for 1260 days, they teach of Jesus. And the people of the world believe that they, these two witnesses are responsible for the plagues that are coming on the earth and all the judgments that come upon. They're part of the destiny of Israel. After the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon, Jesus establishes a millennial kingdom, a reign where Jesus reigns in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And it isn't just Jesus. King David returns as well with the saints of old. And God says through the prophet Ezekiel, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. That's Ezekiel chapter, seven, chapter 37. You know, the future of Israel is certain. It has been written. It is history that is yet to be fulfilled. We who are grafted in will return and reign with Christ for the thousand years, immediately following the seven years of tribulation. God's headquarters at that time will be Jerusalem. And, in, and it says all of the nations that once warred against Israel will come to Jerusalem to worship the King of the Lord of hosts. Amen and my amen. My friends, this is the future. This is the greatest sign of the soon coming king. Not only the restoration of Israel, the restoration of Israel, both physically as well as spiritually. We haven't seen spiritual yet, but we're seeing the beginning, the beginning of the restoration. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to speak regarding this. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of faith dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.